The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. First in Paul's missionary journeys, he took off, made a small little loop in the Mediterranean. He preached the gospel, and upon coming back and bringing the report of all that God was doing in the Gentiles, Paul finds himself again stirred to go back and revisit these churches. And so he takes off again. Barnabas and him part ways. Paul takes off on his second missionary journey and he makes his way through the northern area of uh, the Mediterranean Sea there. Makes his way on around through Macedonia, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, down into Greece, into the city of Athens, which was... You know, it was past its prime in Paul's day. It was kind of in the, the, the twilight hours of Athens' greatness, but still very much considered sort of the, the heart, the hub of the intellectual world at that time. From there, he made his way south on the Grecian peninsula down into Corinth. And, uh, and as he enters Corinth, he is, is going to encounter some personal trial and personal difficulty. So we're going to cover Acts 18, verses 1 through 11 this morning. I want to give you file folders to be able to uh, sort this out. So here's my outline. I'll just give that away at the beginning. First of all, verses 1 through 3, Paul's diligence in ministry. Paul's diligence in ministry. Verses 3 through 5, Paul's dependency on others. Again, that's verses 3 through 5, Paul's dependency on others. Verses 6 through 10, Paul's discouragement in ministry. Paul's discouragement in ministry. And last but certainly not least, verse 11, Paul's discipleship shift. So th- those are the kind of the, the headings of what we're going to be talking about as we walk our way through what is here in the passage. And, and really what we're going to be doing is, is just trying to learn some lessons from Paul's uh, missionary travels in Corinth. We're, we're going to try and like pull from that, like what is going on in Paul's heart, what's happening in his life and in his understanding, and, and what does it mean for us? Like how, how does that apply to us? So Paul has just left Athens the intellectual capital of the world, and he's made his way now about 46 miles south to the city of Corinth. Uh, Corinth was cosmopolitan. Uh, It was a strategic uh, place or strategic city for Roman efforts. It was was destroyed in Rome's war uh, with Greece, and Julius Caesar had come back and, and rebuilt the city. And so... In Paul's day, all of the buildings in Corinth were, were no more than 100 years old. It was, a, it was a new city with relatively new buildings and had, had not you know, gone through all the weathering that some of those ancient cities had, had gone through. Um, in addition, its location uh, made it a, pl- a prime place for people to land. Uh, it, it gets kind of stuck at the crosshairs of a very critical point on the peninsula uh, that, that 
comes down into the Mediterranean where Greece is. There's about 750,000 citizens that called Corinth home. And, um, and those citizens were there largely because of commerce. So it was cosmopolitan, but it was also commercial. Very commercial place. Uh, as, as you sort of follow the peninsula down where, where Greece is, when, when you get to Athens, you'll notice that there is a, an inlet at, from both sides on the point of Greece. Matter of fact, if you, have, if you have a Bible that's got a map in the back, why don't you just flip over, keep a thumb here, flip over to the, to the Bible. Excellent. Oh, look. Walter, you're amazing. He just pulled that up out of nowhere. So if you look down, you see where Corinth is on the left-hand side of the screen here or in your Bible map. If you're a Bible student, you say, I don't want these slides. I want to look at the Bible. Uh, and you can see that there's a body of water right underneath the word Achaia there that comes down towards Athens, and, and then that narrow strip of, of land, and then Corinth was placed right on that narrow strip of land, right at the Isthmus. Now, here's what would happen. Traveling the sea in those days was, was actually kind of treacherous. It was a, a really difficult journey, involved a lot of risk. And so what people would do is that they would come down out of the protection of the Adriatic Sea, which is on the eastern side, or excuse me, the western side of uh, the peninsula there. So if you think uh, the boot of Italy that comes down, the back side of the boot of Italy, that little strip of water right there was fairly calm, it was fairly protected, and uh, was a safe place to bring boats without a whole lot of like bad weather and waves and that sort of a thing. Well, they would come in and they would hit that little inlet and come all the way down to where Corinth was and there they would unburden their ships and load things up and then carry that across to the other side so that they could get their goods to the Aegean Sea which is on the eastern side of the isthmus there. And so on that little strip of land where Corinth is strategically placed they had land routes heading north and south down into the peninsula and they had uh, they had boating routes, shipping routes that went east and west so that uh, you could bring your goods from the Adriatic Sea to the Aegean Sea. And they could go directly from Rome, from Italy, all the way across throughout the Roman Empire. Very strategic place. As a result, lots of people gathered there. Uh, Tim Keller has got a quote that I think is helpful. He says that, that Athens was like Boston. It was the intellectual center of that area. And that Corinth was like New York City. It was the commercial center, the business center of that area. So Corinth was at the, the, the center and the hub of trade there. And Paul comes here very strategically. He knows, like, if, it, like if the gospel plants here, if, if a church is planted here, what's going to happen is that as people are traveling from all over the Roman Empire, the gospel influence that is there will begin to spread out from that place to all the other places throughout the Roman Empire. He's very wise. Now, along with it being a very commercial place, it was also very corrupt. So it was cosmopolitan, commercial, corrupt, three C's. There you go. You're welcome. It's very corrupt. When you get to Corinth, what you find actually is that they were, you know, they're catering to the appetites of sailors and business people. Uh, and, and these folks are, they, they are wanton for every kind of 
of um, sinful desire that could possibly be imagined. As a result, the city was, it's the business equivalent of like a Las Vegas type of environment, right? Matter of fact, in the city center stood a hill, was 1,500 feet in elevation. On the top of that hill was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And uh, if you've been around Bible teaching for any amount of time, you know that uh, attached to that temple were uh, literally hundreds or some even think thousands of temple prostitutes, both male and female, who would, who would every evening come down and flood the city and offer their bodies in exchange for a small offering to the temple. It was a way for them to, to gain money. And they were simply, uh, or they were essentially temple prostitutes. So every, every evening, you know, the place is like flooded with these temple prostitutes. And there are sailors everywhere who've been on the sea by themselves for a long time in the company of uh, just other men. And as a result, it, was, it just became a place that was just filled with sexual sin, debauchery, money issues. There was infighting. There was clamoring for power. And, 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 and as a result, people would come in. And there was a whole bunch of people that... Uh, would, would migrate in during the Isthmus Games. And um, it was sort of like their form of the Olympics, very famous in those times. And these people were famous orators. They would come in and they would make speeches and then people would pay them to hear their wisdom, their Sophia, that's the Greek word for wisdom, and they, and they would pay them so that they could learn how to like, get ahead in society and, 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 and become more uh, you know, intellectually astute and climb the social ladder in this environment. It, it's the equivalent of what we see as TED Talks today, right? And so people like bought into that. Like they would come and attend the lectures of these itinerant speakers that would come through and, and, and then make their way through the area. So in the corruption, everybody's clamoring to get ahead. Everybody's, you know, trying to get their sexual desires and their financial desires met. And everybody's stepping on one another. And Paul comes into that place with the gospel. This is not an easy place to do ministry, right? Now, fortunately, uh, there was, in fact, a synagogue in Corinth. And so Paul makes his way through the city to find that synagogue. Because again, for him to preach the gospel, one of the easiest ways to be able to bridge that gap immediately is to talk to people who already have a base of knowledge about Judaism, about God's promises to bring a Messiah, about um, you know, all that God has intended to do in the world. And so the easiest place to do that is to go to a synagogue where they already understand the scriptures in the Old Testament. So he goes. We read verse 1 chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. That's after leaving uh, Athens. He he makes his way through that 46-mile journey down the Isthmus into Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, uh, a native of Pontus, who has recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So the first thing that I really want to draw your attention to is is Paul's determination in ministry. A while ago, I I saw a meme 
that uh, it made me chuckle, and then it sort of like hit home a little bit too. <laughs> As memes are known to do, right? They make you laugh, and then they also like give you a very poignant truth. So uh, here's the one that I saw. Uh, what, what made me chuckle about it is I'm 42, and I have had more people ask me recently, how, how are you doing? You just, you look so tired. <laughs> I'm like, thank you. Your, your gift is encouragement. Praise God. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the truth is, is that ministering to others is costly. It's difficult. This is true, not just for vocational ministry within the church, but for anybody who has a service-oriented career. Uh, it's true for all you moms and dads. It's true for table waiters and healthcare workers and people who have to work with the public, police officers, and those that are in, you know, the, the, the medical field. It's like, man, this is, this is hard work. And the things that you see and come into contact with as a result of that, are, it's like the, the sorrows of this world can be just flat out overwhelming. Now, to be fair, it's not true all of the time. There are a great many se seasons where serving Jesus uh, in different capacities is an absolute joy. But there are also some seasons of weariness where the work of serving and ministering to others uh, is, is exceedingly costly. And, and probably no one would have more reason to feel this than Paul. I mean, you, you think about his heart. I, Paul's determination in ministry is astounding. First of all, he was willing to suffer in, incredible things. I mean, you think about what he's been through up to this point. James Boyce says it this way. He says, uh, Paul had been opposed virtually everywhere that he went. And instead of decreasing, the opposition actually seemed to be increasing. At the very beginning of his first missionary journey, when he crossed Cyprus, there was no mention of any real trials or persecution. When he went to enter Pamphylia and came to Antioch and Pisidia, he was opposed so strongly that he had to leave that city after only being there for a short time. And then the same thing happened at Iconium. And then at Lystra, they stoned him. Those that were in opposition and, and had been dogging his steps, came. Uh, their persecution became outright physical abuse, and he was stoned. Then on his second missionary journey, when Paul went to Philippi, he was flogged. This is the first of several experiences of that particularly cruel form of Roman punishment. And he and Silas were thrown into prison, had their feet put in stocks. And this was the first time that Paul was in prison for the faith, and it was fresh from that experience that he now lands himself uh, in Corinth. He passed through Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and finally makes his way to Corinth. And, and he's coming off of a, an adventure with God where pretty much in every city somebody tries to kill him or beats him up with, with you know, sticks or throws rocks at him till he's dead, or throws him in prison to sit overnight and his feet are in stocks. Like, it's, it's been a trying year for Paul in ministry. Now, I, you know, pain and suffering are semi-relative. I, I think, you know, when somebody's, like, writing me a bad email or something, 
I'm like, I'm being persecuted. Yeah. But, but Paul, like, he, like, almost died multiple times. Matter of fact, there's a lot of debate that goes on as to whether or not he actually died at Lystra when he was stoned with these rocks. Whether or not he actually went to heaven, God said, nope, not yet. I mean, that was his experience, right? Now, you have to understand that he was willing to endure a whole lot of things, but I'll tell you, no matter how spiritual you are, those things really can take a toll on you. Paul was willing to suffer. He was also willing to walk. By this point, at, at this point, Paul is almost about 50, 50 years old. He has traveled approximately 2,000 miles on foot for the sake of the gospel. Another 1,000 miles by boat. This is the equivalent of someone walking from Medford to Chicago for the sake of the gospel. As a matter of fact, I had to, I had to pull it up on my phone and, and, and take a look. Like, how far is that? So there's from my phone, right? To drive there, it takes a, one day, seven hours. Paul walked the entire route from Medford all the way to Chicago, right? The equivalent of that. For what reason? Just to talk about Jesus. The guy was willing to put on some miles, right? I, I, was, I was trying to think, you know, because I know he's a tent maker. I'm wondering, like, how many pairs of shoes did he have to, like, make and remake, right? For himself to make that journey. Man, we have a hard time reaching out to our neighbors, right? Paul was willing to do all kinds of things for the sake of the gospel. He was willing to suffer. He was willing to walk. And he was willing to work. We, we find out, actually, that by the time that Paul gets to Corinth, that it appears, again, reading between the lines here, that he was probably out of money, that his funding had run out. And, and when he gets there, his first thought is, like, I need a job. I need to find a place to work. And so... He goes to the synagogue, meets with people, finds out that there's some people that he has some connection with because of their trade. He's a tent maker. They're tent makers. And so he hooks up with Aquila and Priscilla. So as Paul leaves Athens, makes his way to Corinth, uh, he adds this, uh, another 46 miles to his journey. He's by himself. Remember, he left um, Timothy and Silas in, in Macedonia, the northern part of the country. Uh, because he, he wanted them to strengthen the churches that had been planted there. So he's by himself, rolls up into Corinth all alone, and he doesn't have any money. So what does Paul do? Does he sit and pray for provision? Does he say, I just need to fast more so that God will provide more money for me so that I can get out of the hole that I'm in? No. He puts his hand to the plow. He works. He just gets a job and just does it. Just makes it happen. And it doesn't say that this is a huge sacrifice. It's just like a subtle note here. Like he didn't have any money, so he went and got a job. That's Paul's heart. Paul is diligent in the things of the Lord. He's willing to endure 
all kinds of things. He's willing to suffer. He's willing to walk. He's willing to, he's willing to work. So we really see Paul's heart in this, that, that he has a, a determination in ministry, okay? But he's not alone in that. He also has a dependency upon others. And we read in verses 3 through 5 that, that Paul forms this relationship with Aquila and Priscilla. They housed him. They fed him. They gave him work. They became laborers with him in the gospel. And the rest of the scriptures tell us that Aquila and Priscilla eventually made their way back to their hometown, back to Rome, and they housed the church there in Rome again as well. They also traveled with Paul in the future. They uh, discipled Apollo. In the next chapter, you'll see that uh, uh, Priscilla is the one who like, comes alongside of Apollo and says, hey, like, you, you talk really good, but you don't know anything about Jesus. <laughs> Let me help you, right? So this, this team of people that God has gathered around Paul, Paul is not a one-man show. Now, we, we read mostly about Paul from Luke's perspective, but there's all these other names that are continually mentioned in association with Paul. Paul did not do everything on the power and energy of his own strength. He did it in community and fellowship with others. God raised up friends and co-laborers who were willing to leave their homes as well and travel with Paul. People like Silas and Timothy and Barnabas and John Mark. So Paul was dependent upon others. We see that Silas and Timothy traveled around with Paul. Uh, he could trust them, right? He, he leaves them behind in Macedonia, and, 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 and Paul says, hey, listen, I, I, I need to press forward here. We need to kind of keep things moving as it relates to the gospel. But guys, the church here needs help. They need strengthening. They need encouragement. So you guys go back and help strengthen those churches and we'll meet up somewhere down the road. Now, I was thinking about this in, in my mind. How do you plan for that, right? It's not like they have cell phones. Corinth has 750,000 people in it. And he's like, I'll see you sometime. But he, he trusts the Lord. He trusts them. I'm sure they had some sort of a plan like, hey, if you get to some city, ask around at the synagogue. They'll know who I am. Usually they've tried to beat me up by then. Um, so, you know, I'm fairly famous in every city that I go to because everybody hates me. So they, they go to Athens and there's really no mention of him here. And maybe they make their way to Corinth. Or maybe they had a plan to meet up in Corinth. But, but, but Paul leaves Silas and Timothy behind to, to take care of these churches that he's planted. And he just trusts them to do that. Now, what's really interesting here is that you read that, that Paul's working and he's laboring, but then in, in verse 4 it says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. So while he's working, he's also laboring for the gospel every Sabbath in the synagogue. And, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, uh, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So, here's what happens. When, when Silas and Timothy show up, we know from Paul's letters to Philippi and uh, his letters to Corinth 
that Silas and Timothy brought with them provision from the churches that were planted in Macedonia. They said, hey, Paul's out there traveling on his own. He probably doesn't have a whole lot of resources. So they took up an offering and they sent it with, with Silas and Timothy to Paul. And so when they show up, Paul all of a sudden has provision again. And what does he go do? He goes right back to preaching the gospel full time, right? He starts laboring. Now, how did he do that? Because obviously when he was working on his own, he had to both work and preach. But then when the offering comes, now he's set free to only focus on just preaching and proclaiming Jesus and doing real missionary work. He does both, right? But when the resources are there for him to devote himself fully to kingdom work, that is exactly what he does. And he goes on to thank the Corinthians and to, uh, excuse me, to thank the Philippians. He says, man, I was supplied by your generosity and by your need. And then he tells the Corinthians, he's like, when I came to you guys, the gospel was preached not at your expense. Remember, I labored with my own hands, but then also the Macedonians gave to that cause in order that you wouldn't be charged for the preaching of the gospel. So, both in Philippians 4, 11 through 16, also in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, Paul makes it clear that the only thing that enabled me to preach the gospel and to do the kind of ministry that I wanted to do was my partnership with other people. It was my labor with my friends. It was, it was, it was the people around me that freed me up to do what I was doing. You know, um, I have had the privilege of, of being kind of on all sides of this in a number of ways. About the first oh, nine years of ministry, I was bivocational, which meant that I worked a full-time job and eventually had my own business. And, and then, you know, uh, by the grace of God, at about year nine, uh, after laboring, uh, the Lord opened up provision for me to be able to be a minister of the gospel full-time. And that was a, a wonderful gift. And then the financial crisis hit for in 2008 and stretching on into 2009. Most of the people that had gotten saved in our church were saved out of the trades. They were people that I met doing construction. And uh, so our church kind of built around just like handymen, laborers, that kind of a crowd. And when the financial crisis hit, they didn't have work. And as a result, the church was having to dip into savings every, every month. And so in 2011, the, the savings was just taking a hit, taking a hit. And, and finally, uh, we said, I pulled my elders up and I said, hey, guys, listen, uh, if we keep going here, our church is going to look like we came in because we had just merged with another church. We soaked up all the savings. And... Um, and we left this church sort of like a shriveled raisin, right? So we can't do that. We, it's unloving for us to do that, first of all. Second of all, I think, think it's not real responsible. We don't know when the economy is going to come back up. I think we're going to have to lay me off. I had to, like, talk to my elders about laying me off, right? And then I tried to find work, and there was no work. And we, we took a major financial hit as a consequence of that. I've been on all sides of this. And Paul would say, 
later on, he said, I know how to abound and how to be abased. I know how to have plenty and how to live without. Now, did I endure my trial as gracefully as Paul? Probably not. You know, there were times of like pleading. I tried to manipulate God on a few occasions. I'm like, this looks really bad for you, right? <laughs> I did, did all the things that I knew to do, you know, name it, claim it, you just, you, whatever, right? You get desperate. But in the end, you know, God's God. And there's seasons where you put in more work and effort, and there's seasons where you, um, your work and effort is singularly focused rather than having to be split in different directions. And that's just a part of the ministry. But I'll tell you this. Caves Christian Fellowship, the church that I, I planted, was not built upon my shoulders. It was built upon the shoulders of a group of people that all labored together. And by the grace of God, it's still, still standing. Heritage Christian Fellowship was not built upon the personality and giftings of one man. It's built by a body of believers who've come together under one king, Jesus. That's the beauty of it, right? Because the leader can change, right? The person who hands the word of God out can be me this week, and it can be somebody else next week, and it can be a, an elder uh, later on. It can be different people, but but the work of ministry that is happening here is the direct result of people here at Heritage who have surrendered their hearts and lives to Jesus and have said, yeah, I could take a piece of this. I want to do that. I want to see the kingdom furthered. What a blessing it is for us to be a part of a body of believers who say, no, we, we're not here as a part of this simply to watch the rock star up front. We are here because we are the body of Christ. And God has called us to participate in his kingdom work. Well, Paul here exemplifies his dependency upon others. He's dependent upon Aquila and Priscilla. He's dependent upon Silas and Timothy. He's dependent upon the churches in Macedonia for the work that he is doing. I, I just want to make just a quick note, if you will permit me. Uh, just, everybody have your phone. Pull your phone out. Uh, I want you to t put in this number. T send a text message to this number right here. 541-944-4717. Okay. And now I'm going to tell you who that is. That's Sam Peck. Okay? He's over at Philippi this morning. He's preaching the word of God, laboring in that other city on behalf of the kingdom. Why is he there? Because Jesus sent him there. You know what has enabled him to be there and devoting himself to the word of God and to the shepherding of those people? The people right here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. You guys all have a hand in that. So I want you to just send him a quick note that just says, we are praying for you this morning. Would you just do that? And then we're going to actually do it. We're going to pray for him. So take two seconds. We're praying for you. We're going to blow his phone up, hopefully ruin his sermon. <laughs> That's part of my goal. 
Is everybody there? You got it all typed up? Ready? Set? Send? We're praying for you. And let's just do that right now. God, you called Sam. <laughs> you raised him up and you gave him a heart for the people of Grant's past. Not only did you raise him up, but many of our key people, people who have loved and helped to build and establish heritage, they sold their houses and moved over there with him for the sake of the gospel. Lord, would you send to them not only the encouragement of knowing that they've been prayed for, that they are loved, but also, God, would you send to them power from the Holy Spirit this morning and encourage their hearts in the work that they're doing. God, may they feel that they are not alone, but that there's an army of people here at Heritage who care about them, who are invested in them, who are praying for them. And I ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for doing that. I think that's important. Paul recognizes his dependence upon other people. He is not a one-man show. He is a laborer for the kingdom in other places. But, but I'll tell you something. When, when we look at this passage, what we see here is that the toll that ministry has taken on Paul has been difficult. Um, as we read on here, we'll see what happens. Verse 6. Uh, actually, it's back up to verse 5. When, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he gets rejected eventually at the synagogue. And, and he, in front of them, he shakes the dust off of his garment and he says, hey, your blood's on your own heads. He's quoting Ezekiel the prophet and saying, like, uh, you're the watchman on the wall. Your job is to warn the city. If they don't heed the warning, then that there's an army attacking them, well, then their blood's on their own heads. And he's, he's quoting this prophet to say, listen, you're, you know what's true now. I've declared to you the truth. Now it's, what you do with the truth is on you, Right? But he gets rejected, and then he says, from now on, I'll, I'll go to the Gentiles. Verse 7, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue, so we have this guy who's a God-fearer, lives right next door to the synagogue. I love this. Paul just plants a house church right next to the synagogue that he just got rejected in. I bet they were big fans of that as well. And then Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So the, the, the leader of the synagogue gets saved. He has to abandon his post in the synagogue. And he is now, instead of going to synagogue every day, he's going right next door to this house church. I mean, it's, it's an incredible story. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Paul 
comes to a place of discouragement in the midst of the good things that God is doing. It appears here that Paul is wrestling with fear. So much so that the Lord has to come to him in a vision and comfort him personally and say to him, Paul, listen, first of all, don't be afraid. Verse 9. He's got really five words of comfort for Paul. If you want to jot those down, they're real simple. First of all, don't be afraid. Now, remember, this is the same thing that, that Paul, or excuse me, that God had said to Joshua as they entered the promised land, right? Don't be afraid. This is the same thing that Jesus told his disciples when the waves came up on the boat and there was a, a giant storm. He said, hey, don't be afraid. And now Jesus is telling Paul, I know that you're afraid. And I'm telling you, you don't have to be. Don't let fear rule over you. What's he afraid of? Well, the second word of comfort kind of gives us a clue. He says, keep speaking, don't be silent. It's likely inferred here that the temptation he's facing is that if I keep speaking, I'm going to end up getting beaten up again or thrown in prison or having rocks thrown at me or whatever. And I don't know if I'm ready for that again. I don't know if I can muster the strength and emotional energy to do that again. And Jesus comes to him and says, hey, keep talking. Keep speaking. You just be faithful. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. Third thing, why? Because I am with you. You're not alone in this, Paul. I am with you. You know, in, in 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's life, he would, he would say to Timothy, as he's waiting to be executed, he says, I've run the race, I've finished the course and everything. He says, when I went on trial, no one stood with me but the Lord. He stood with me. See, Jesus had fulfilled this promise to Paul that even when he went to trial and was sentenced to be beheaded, that Jesus was with him. Jesus met him not by delivering him out of the trial, but by being with him in the trials that he faced. He said, don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you. Fourthly, no one will attack and harm you. That is the key piece that Paul was really hoping for. I don't want to get beat up again. Now, it's after he is encouraged by the Lord, he's going to go on to say here in a couple of chapters, listen, I only know that where I'm headed, the only thing that's waiting for me is suffering. Beatings, imprisonment, that's all waiting for me in the future. But these things don't dissuade me from going. I am compelled by the Holy Spirit to go anyway, regardless of the suffering. But in a low moment in Paul's ministry, he feels weary and he feels like giving up. He feels like being silent. And Jesus has to come to him and say, I'm with you, keep going, it's okay. Hey, can you, can you relate? Can you relate to moments of weariness where you're like, man, I don't know if I can keep walking this out. This parenting thing is hard. 
This marriage thing is tough. This, what we are going through is difficult. I, it's, this is so hard to walk out. Maybe today God might comfort you in the same way that God comforted Paul. Keep walking it out. I'm with you in this. You can trust me. When Jesus says to him, no one will attack and harm you, he has the assurance that he's going to have a season of rest. And then the fifth thing that he says to him is, I have many people in this city. In other words, there's, there's work to do. There's people that are going to be saved. There's, there's things that are going to happen here. Paul, don't give up early. Don't quit on this because I've got work to do here in this place. Don't let your emotional weariness keep you from experiencing the fruitfulness that's on the other side of this. Keep walking it out. I'm tr- just trust me. I am with you in the middle of this. I love this too. I just love God's perspective, right? He's like, these people are already mine. They haven't heard of me yet. They don't know me yet, but they're going to. They're my people. <laughs> I love God's heart in that. So Paul receives, this is real key, Paul receives this encouragement from Jesus. And how does he respond? Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And this is where we see Paul's discipleship shift. This is the first time that you see Paul devote a significant amount of time to discipling in one location. He'll spend a year and a half here, and then in the next city in Ephesus, he'll spend two years And then he'll spend two years in Caesarea, of course, not by his own will. He's in prison there. (laughs) And then he spends several years in Rome, also not by his own choosing, but because he's imprisoned there. But he is moving to more of a long-term strategy in discipleship at this point in his ministry. Prior to this, Paul functions sort of like a Johnny Appleseed. He's just like going around planting seeds of the gospel everywhere that he goes and then leaving people behind to water it in, right? He's highly mobile. He's working very hard. But here, he makes a change. I I would like to make a suggestion, and you you can take it or reject it, and that's okay. But I, I think when you read 1 Corinthians that you figure out maybe a little bit why. I think he's like, listen, it's not about intellectual wisdom and knowledge, the pursuit of like intellectual facts. And it's not solely experiential either. Like there's like this, this, this piece where there is the spirit working and you are experiencing the presence of God, but it, it's, really, it's really both and, not either or. It says that, you know, the Greeks, they want wisdom. They want Sophia, Right? And, and so their whole life is, is in the pursuit of, of facts and information for the sake of gathering more facts and information. And, and the Jews, they want some miraculous experience, some sign that's going to like wow them and to, they go, oh, wow, now I trust God because I saw the miracle. I saw this thing happen. This must be the Lord. So, so Paul, he... He says, when I came to Corinth, I I came in weakness, I came in fear, I came in trembling. And I I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Matter of fact, can I read this to you? I just want to read this to you out of the the message because I think this is so good. This is 1 Corinthians 2. He says... uh, 
He says, you'll remember, friends, that when I, when I first came to you to let you in on God's master stroke, and he's talking about the gospel there, I didn't try and impress you with polished speeches and the latest philosophy. I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First, Jesus and who he is, and then Jesus and what he did, Jesus crucified. I, I was unsure of how to go about this and, and felt totally inadequate. I was scared to death, if you want to know the truth of it. And so nothing I said could have impressed you or anyone else. But the message, that's the gospel, came through anyway. God's spirit and God's power did it which made it clear that your life of faith is a response to God's power, not to some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or anyone else. Here's what he's saying. I didn't try and motivate you through some sort of emotional response. I didn't want you to have some supernatural encounter. Here's what I want to do. I wanted to present to you Jesus and what he did. I'm going to talk about the cross. I'm going to talk about what he did in taking sin. And, and here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to breathe life into the gospel. And you're going to hear that. And all of a sudden, brokenness will take place in your heart and in your life. You'll, you'll hear the message about Jesus and go, Oh man, I need to be saved. Would he be a savior like that for me? When you find out that, that Jesus went through his suffering on the cross for your sake, all of a sudden something supernatural happens. Your heart is awakened by the Holy Spirit and you go, Jesus, do it for me too. Save me as well. I, I, I just want to say something to our church that I think is so important for us to hear. We are excellent, I think. I think as a church, in pursuing knowledge. I think we have a real strong desire for biblical literacy and for the desire to know God's word and know it well and to know it rightly. Theological pursuit. I, I, I think that that is one of our strong points. If there were any critique that I could offer is that sometimes we do that in the place of the personal relationship and the acts of obedience. We gain knowledge for knowledge's sake. And it's divorced from action on the other side. The things we know are in order that we might live to the glory of God in close fellowship with Jesus. And I just want to encourage you guys this morning. The point of knowing is to do and live. That's it. Jesus, at the end of his famous... Uh, sermon when he talks about all the things that are going on in people's hearts he says listen you're going to be either like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand or the wise man who builds his house on the rock and the only difference between the two is that one hears and understands and does something with it the other one hears and understands and does nothing with it he's like the guy who builds his house on the sand Week by week, we go through the scriptures. Week by week, we talk about God's word. But listen, the point of that is in order that we might be close to Jesus, live under his authority, and represent him well with our life in the world. Amen? So God, would you help us to do that? 
Would you strengthen us as your people to be those, God, who live out what we believe. We are not a Gnostic religion, Lord. We are we're not some group of people living in the pursuit of just facts and information. But we are living in the pursuit of a person. Jesus, it's our desire to grow in our dependence upon you, to grow in our personal relationship with you. We, we want to, to know you better through your word. We want to live with, to a greater degree of surrender to the working of your spirit as you teach and instruct us, as you sanctify us and, and clean up our hearts, Lord. So God, would you accomplish that work in us? May we, like Paul, not think of it in terms of a short-term decision, not think of our, our relating to you in terms of like a, um, accepting intellectual facts, but God, in, over the long haul, over a year and a half, and two years, and 10 years, and 20 years, and 50 years of faithfulness, God, may we day by day live out the things that we are learning so that what we know is united with how we live and what we do. God, shape us that we might be disciples for your glory, for your kingdom, for your purpose. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.